Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Melanie Wellham from the University of Bath's Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology talks about the benefits of stem cells. Welcome, everyone. And could I first ask people to turn off their mobile phones? Well, it's a pleasure to be introducing Melanie Wellham this evening as Professor of Molecular Signalling. Melanie has been functioning as a professor since 2004 with one omission, and that is giving her inaugural lecture. Melanie was an undergraduate student at Imperial College, where she gained a first-class honours degree in biochemistry. And her project for that degree was on gene regulation in embryonal carcinoma cells. And this sparked her interest in stem cells and signalling. She conducted research for her PhD at the Imperial Cancer Research Fund uh, at the University of London, studying the VSRC oncogene, again with an emphasis on cell signalling. And Melanie spent six years as a research fellow and then research associate at the University of British Columbia. This work focused on how the growth and survival of blood cells is regulated. And in 1995, Melanie came to the University of Bath as a lecturer in pharmacology. She progressed through the rank of senior lecturer and then reader before being appointed a professor in 2004. In these 14 years at Bath, Melanie has supported her research with grants from the Medical Research Council, the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, and from industry, funding to a total of three and three quarter million pounds She's published close to 50 papers, supervised 13 postgraduate students and 12 postdoctoral researchers. At the same time, she's raised two children, and it's very nice to see them here tonight to learn more about what their mother does. <laughs> Melanie has taken an active role in public engagement. Her audiences have ranged from school children to the Bath Royal Scientific and Literary Institute and from the university's Gulp lecture series to the Women's Institute. I believe it's crucial for our subject disciplines that scientists do take time to explain what they're doing to a wide and a broad audience. And this is even more important in an area such as the study of stem cells, where public perception can have a serious impact on the progress of research. So I'm looking forward this evening to enjoying Melanie's most recent piece, of public engagement as she presents her inaugural lecture, Understanding Stem Cells, Benefits for All. Melanie. Thank you, Chris, for that very um, kind and thorough introduction. And yes, I thought what I wanted to do for my inaugural lecture, because this is obviously a quite a mixed audience um, in attendance, and it is part of public understanding of science that we give these lectures, is to actually pose a question which is actually very topical, but also very close to the research that my laboratory is currently interested in. And hopefully, through the next 45 minutes or so, I will actually be able to convince you that if we can understand stem cells better then we all gain to benefit from that understanding in the future. So what I intend to do, because we're obviously a very mixed audience, is to start off by talking about a little bit about what stem cells actually are and also why there's really so much interest in stem cells, because I think we really have to understand that in order to really appreciate why we might want to understand them in more detail. Being a scientist, I can't resist the opportunity to talk a little bit about what we've been doing recently. So for those non-scientists, please allow me a couple of slides of, of scientific data. I've kind of taken it down a level or two to if I were giving a plenary lecture at a meeting. There's still a little bit of data. Um, and then hopefully I will come on to describe studies that are going on in many different laborator laboratories to really address this question of really harnessing the potential of stem cells so they can benefit humankind. So we need to start off by actually understanding what a stem cell is. If you look down a microscope and you magnify the stem cell a hundred times, it actually doesn't look terribly exciting and interesting. So this is a picture that um, 
a, a postdoc Nick Penning took when he was in my lab of a stem cell, and it doesn't look very interesting. And this actually sort of fools you into thinking they're not very interesting cells, when in actual fact, stem cells have the remarkable property of being able to change into many other cell types. And that is really this interest which has really sparked scientists' and clinicians' imaginations about what we could actually use these cells for. So I think before I really go on and, and talk about understanding cells, we really need to understand why there's so much interest in them. And really, it all comes from this property that stem cells have in themselves to actually make other cell types. So really, irrespective of the source of stem cells, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the different sources and supplies of stem cells that we can actually utilise, irrespective of that, if we could turn stem cells, whatever their flavour, into different cell types, either cells of the heart, nerve cells, blood cells, pancreatic cells, cells of the liver, then we would actually have a supply of cells that we could use for a wide number of applications. And it's actually, the reason that's important is because it's very difficult to get hold of these tissues from patients, from normal individuals to conduct studies. Not too many of us want to go along and donate too much of our liver or our pancreas. Blood's another, another matter. And so we're very limited in the supplies of these cells that we normally have. Stem cells offer the possibility to potentially make unlimited amounts of these cells that we can use not only for research but also for the purposes of treating patients. And it's really this area, the area of cell therapy and regenerative medicine, which I think probably most people have heard of. It's the thing that's most widely reported in the press. Stem cells are marvellous. They're going to cure all ills through replacing cells that have been damaged through disease or injury and will be able to treat people in a different way. Instead of giving people medicines, drugs, for perhaps the whole of their life in order to treat a disorder, we may be able to give them stem cells or cells derived from those cells maybe just once and that might cure them. So this could be a whole new way of treating people. And that's why there is so much interest in this area. But that's really not the only area that we can actually benefit from the potential that stem cells offer us. These cells can also provide a source of cells for discovering better drugs to treat diseases, for checking that those drugs are actually safe, because one of the biggest problems with new drugs is that they're toxic. They can be toxic to our livers, to our hearts, to our nerves. And so if we can use cells made from stem cells to make medicines safer, then that's going to benefit all of us as well. We can also use stem cells to help us understand human diseases more effectively and also study processes of early development when diseases can actually start to also arise. So there's a great many applications, and this is really why we're so interested in stem cells, um, because they could do many different things in many different areas. And stem cells are actually pretty widespread in all of us. So as the years have gone by, scientists have recognised that stem cells are actually critical for maintaining our tissues and organs in a healthy condition. And the more people have looked, the more stem cells they've found in more different locations. So we have stem cells in our brain that carry out some limited repair um, during our lives. We have Stem cells in our muscles, this little pink cell here is actually a stem cell which is responsible for regenerating our muscle fibres. We have blood cells in our bone marrow that are responsible for continually producing new blood cells that we require to fight off infections and to carry oxygen around our bodies. We have stem cells in the cornea of our eye which are very important for maintaining the surface of our eye to maintain vision. 
And we have stem cells in our bone marrow, which are important for regenerating bone, cartilage. So those of you who are suffering from knee injuries, and I know there's a couple there in the audience, just think it's your stem cells which are actually going to be really important um, for repairing that injury. And that's really what stem cells do for us as adults. They're really important for keeping us healthy. They repair and replace um, tissues and cells as they wear out, and they heal injuries. Maybe not as fast as we'd like in some cases, but they can do that. And so they're important both when we're growing, they're important when we're middle-aged. I'll be in trouble for that later on. And they're important for when we're older. So they actually play a role throughout our lives. Okay? So these cells can replicate themselves throughout our lives and make sure that when we need new red blood cells, there's a source of cells there to generate them. So that sounds great. Well, couldn't we use these cells for therapy then? Because they're there, they're present in all of us, they're doing the right job that we might want to uh, mimic. Well, we can, and for a long time people were very keen on this, but the problem is that these cells are actually incredibly rare. They're quite difficult to isolate. Even after 20 years of having isolated blood stem cells, we're still pretty rubbish at growing them in the laboratory. The body's very good at doing it, but we're not very good at copying what the body does. And they're actually limited in the number of cells that they can actually produce. So a blood stem cell can produce about eight different cell types, whereas other stem cells can produce actually much larger numbers of cells. And I'm going to talk about those stem cells in a moment. And the other problem is that these cells, if you take them from one patient and put them into another, even if they're quite closely related, they can actually be rejected by that recipient. And so there's then no benefit for that patient. And that's a big problem. So we need alternative sources of stem cells. And what I've actually shown you here is actually perhaps what people could call the ultimate stem cell. This is um, actually a fertilized sea urchin egg, but it doesn't matter if it's a fertilized sea urchin egg. It could be any fertilized egg. And as soon as fertilization has occurred, as is shown in this video image here, this egg starts to undergo a process of development. It starts to divide. You can see it's active. You see it splitting into two cells then those cells split into another two cells, and those cells gradually change and gradually become more specialised. But they've all come from this one cell. So really, the egg is an ultimate stem cell, and if development of that sea urchin continued, you'd get something that looks a bit like this. But equally, if that fertilised egg was a human egg, you might get one of these, or even one of these. But you might not want one of those. <laughs> So that's the ultimate stem cell. But actually, eggs are very limited in supply. And we can't, we can't reproduce those. They want to go on and develop. So you can't take an egg and make more eggs in the laboratory. So what can we do? Well, this was a problem that kind of um, puzzled scientists for some time, particularly embryologists. And it was really sort of in the late 1970s and early 1980s that breakthroughs came, some of which were led by this gentleman here, um, Martin Evans, who in 1981 reported that you could take cells from a very early stage embryo. So this is once the egg is fertilized, it starts to develop. And this is a mouse embryo after about three and a half days of development. You've got this outside bit which would go on and form the placenta. And then you've got this inner cell mass, we call it, a clump of cells, which if this developed would actually form the mouse. Okay? And this would be the same if it was a human embryo as well. And what Martin and colleagues discovered was that if you actually took cells out of this early embryo and grew them under certain conditions that you could actually grow cell lines out of these embryos and you could take these cells and grow them almost indefinitely. So they would keep self-replicating on and on for weeks, months and even years. And he coined the phrase embryonic stem cell lines for these cells. 
And these cells are really quite remarkable cells in that they sort of copy what they would normally have done in that mouse embryo in that they would have given rise to many different cell types. But we've got tricks that we can keep them in the laboratory and we can grow them and we tend to grow them in sort of vessels. We can grow them in round vessels. They like to stick to things. So we can grow them in Petri dishes here or we can grow them on 2D surfaces in flasks like this. So these are kind of some of the tools of our trade, if you like, for growing these cells. And they will make copies of themselves, and they will also, when you tell them to, under the right conditions, form more than 200 different types of cells, which is quite remarkable. No adult stem cell can do that. Only embryonic stem cells have that property. So they can make all the cells that make up an adult mouse, which is over 200 different types. And this special property is given the term pluripotent. And I apologise for some of these long names, but I will use them anyway, so I need to introduce them. So it wasn't until some 17 years later that the first human embryonic stem cell lines were derived using very similar approaches that had been used for mouse. But that kind of time frame probably tells you that these cells were much harder to actually derive, because it took a very long time to work out the conditions to do that. And this is the scientist who led that work initially, James Thompson, who looked slightly bemused at his achievements, I think, in this photograph, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, but here we have human embryonic stem cells growing on a layer of feeder cells that keeps them really happy. And again, these are pluripotent. But... Obviously, these human embryonic stem cells, because they've been derived in the same way that mouse embryonic stem cells were, have involved the use of a human embryo. They require a human fertilised embryo in order to provide the inner cell mass from which the cells can be grown out. Now, in the UK, we have a very strictly regulated system that allows this to be, which permits this under strict guidelines and under strict licenses. And in the UK, only spare embryos from in vitro fertilisation procedures are allowed to be used. And normally those embryos would have to be destroyed after five years if they hadn't actually been used. And it's often those preserved embryos which are actually donated by the couples under informed consent for research purposes for deriving lines such as the ones I've just told you about. But obviously this is a, a very um, tricky area. There is a wide range of moral and religious views surrounding the use of human embryos. And in some countries it's actually banned. They, you cannot derive lines and you cannot use the lines. I'm going to come up and I'm going to propose that there's actually a solution to this problem through very recent studies. And I want you to hold that thought and I will come on to it a bit later in the lecture. So that kind of gives you an overview of what stem cells are, why we're interested in them, what some of the different types of stem cells are and what they can do. What I want to do now is to try and convince you that we need to understand those stem cells in great detail if we're actually going to bring about some of the advances in treating different diseases, in improving drug discovery and safety. Um, what we actually need to do is really understand those cells really well so we can harness their properties. So if we go back to embryonic stem cells, and that's what I'm going to focus on for, for much of the rest of my talk, um, what do we know about these cells and how are we trying to understand them better? Well, what we have here is time-lapse video microscopy of embryonic stem cells undergoing division over a period of 12 hours. So this is speeded up somewhat. They really don't move around this quickly. But actually, it's quite interesting that they do move around quite a lot when we're growing them on one of these dishes that I've already shown you. So they're quite dynamic. And what they're doing in this video is actually they're making copies of themselves. So each time they divide, they're making an identical daughter cell, okay? I sometimes feel like I've done that when I'm with my daughters, actually, that I've made identical daughters, but maybe not. Um, and this process is actually called self-renewal. So this is a very important process because we are likely to need very large numbers of cells if we're going to apply them to cell therapy or to industrial-scale screening and testing for drug safety. So this is important to understand. 
Now, these cells also are primed, if you like, to form different cell types, which I've indicated in this cartoon. But there's actually a balance, and there's almost a conflict in these cells. We might want to keep them like this, but what these cells want to do, actually, in a steady state, is sometimes they'll do this, and sometimes they'll do this, and sometimes they'll do it randomly, and we feel that we're completely out of control with them because they're not doing what we want them to do. And sometimes we want them to differentiate. So what we need to do is we need to understand how we can drive them to make different cell types when we ask them to, but how we can also keep them as stem cells when we want them to. And that's really the focus of much research which is going on. And part of that research has involved a lot of detailed genetic studies. Now, for those of the non-scientists in the audience, most of the cells in your body, this is my rather poor representation of a cell, has a nucleus in it, and in that nucleus is DNA in the form of chromosomes. And if you were to stretch that out, it would probably go all the way around the world. I can't remember. I have heard um, comments to that effect. Along the length of the DNA are things that we call genes. And these genes make proteins that then act in the cells. Okay? And what stem cell biologists have been doing is trying to define which of these pieces of DNA, if you like, for the, for the non-specialist, are important in those cells. And we've made very good progress in that area. And one of the first genes that were identified to be important was a protein called OPT4. Now, over the next few slides, you will see that biologists and biochemists like to use three to four-letter acronyms for most things. We can't deal with terribly long words. We have to shorten them, okay? So you don't need to worry about what they are. They're just ways that we can speak to each other and so no one else can understand what we're actually talking about, right? So, but don't worry about that. The details aren't important. The thing that is important is that this gene is a bit like um, a Goldilocks and the Three Bears sort of situation, if you have too much of this gene, so you might be the daddy bear, porridge too hot, then you don't stay as a stem cell, you turn into another cell type. If you don't have enough of this gene, so if you're the mummy bear and your porridge is too cold, I personally prefer cold porridge, then again you don't stay as a stem cell and you turn into a different cell type. It's only when you have just the right amount, just the right temperature with baby bear, that actually you can stay as a stem cell. Too much, too little, no good. You need the right amount. And the same can be said for two other genes which people have identified and studied a great deal, SOX2 and NANOG. Actually, this one's a bit unusual because it's got five letters. We're obviously running out of acronyms. The important thing is, I don't want to talk about the detail, the important thing is that these are all transcription factors, okay? And they actually regulate other genes. So we kind of build up a picture of a network of genes acting on other genes, and they regulate the behavior of the cells. And the amount of these in the cell is actually very important. Now, I'm just losing my gown, so you just have to... Excuse me a moment. Okay, so why is that important? Well, actually, that work has been crucial to some very recent discoveries that have been pioneered by this gentleman here, Professor Shinya Yamanaka from Kyoto in Japan. And this, he's kind of developed a new system whereby he can generate new types of stem cells. Now, what he was interested in was not in taking stem cells and turning them into different cell types, but taking different cell types and trying to turn them back into stem cells. This is a pro process that scientists like to call reprogramming. Okay? So a lot of people are focused on from the stem cell to the different cell. He wanted to take the opposite approach. And he did some really beautiful, very simple experiments. He took skin cells from a 39-year-old adult female, and into those cells... He introduced a range of these different 
genes, these different transcription factors that we knew from studies with embryonic stem cells were really important. And he tried different combinations, or I should say his very hard-working postdoc tried different combinations. And he came up with a group of four factors which include this gene I've already told you about, OCT4, and also SOCTS2, and a couple of others. And he found that these four genes, if you took them and put them into an adult skin cell, were enough to turn that adult skin cell, reprogram it back into cells that look very much, to all intents and purposes, like embryonic stem cells. And he characterized these cells, and indeed, not only did they look like embryonic stem cells, they actually behaved like embryonic stem cells. So he called these cells induced pluripotent stem cells. And the major benefit of these is that you can actually make patient-specific embryonic-like stem cells from individual people, so you get rid of the problem of rejection that you would have with adult stem cells. And because these cells do not require embryos for their derivation, you actually get around some of those ethical issues that there are with using embryonic stem cells. So there are fewer ethical concerns. But this work was only possible because other scientists, actually including Xinyar, had actually worked very hard at identifying some of these factors that were important in embryonic stem cells. Now, he's been able to use that knowledge to create these induced pluripotent stem cells, which the field in the last two years has completely exploded and expanded hugely. And I think people really believe that this may be the way forward. They're like embryonic stem cells, but they avoid a lot of the issues that surround embryonic stem cells. So this is really a very exciting development in our understanding of stem cell biology. Okay, so that's a little bit about others' work. So I'm going to talk about some of our own work um, now. And we've been using a number of different approaches. So we've been using an approach which we call chemical genetics to try and understand stem cells better. And I just have to describe a little assay that we do that everyone in the lab absolutely loves. And they're all going to say, no, we don't. Um, we have a clever assay, which is quite easy to score. And they're all going to go, no, it isn't. Um, in that if we grow our stem cells and treat them in different ways, if they stay as stem cells, and these are embryonic stem cells, and we stain them with a certain combination of factors, they will actually be red if they're stem cells. If they're kind of red in the middle, but they've kind of got pink or white cells around the outside, they're a mixture of stem cells and other cell types. And if they're flat and unstained, they're stem cells which have changed into different cell types. So that's the basis of our kind of uh, assay. And these are the actual colonies um, that you get. This is what you would get in a control situation. And I talked to you about the balance. The cells kind of want to change. They want to form different cell types. And so you actually often see this in your colonies. But this is actually quite useful because we found that if we treat these cells with drugs, really, that block an enzyme, and you don't need to worry what this enzyme is. These are the structures for the chemical fraternity in the audience. Um, these drugs actually stop these cells from changing into other cells, and actually, if you like, keep the stem cells as stem cells or keep them young. Okay? And we can grow cells in these um, chemicals for a period of weeks, and they keep their stem cell properties, as shown in this picture, they express high levels of this important gene, OCT4. And they can still, even after that time, still turn into different cells. But we're actually keeping them as stem cells better. We're controlling them better. We're holding them in check, if you like, until we want to induce them to change into a different cell type. We've also... Um, identified some chemicals that can make stem cells change. So those chemicals keep stem cells as stem cells. But we've also identified some that change. And here I have a little quiz for the audience. I want you, I want the audience, not the people in the lab, okay, although you know, maybe you, you could vote too. So these are, are different uh, images of embryonic stem cells which have been treated or not 
with chemicals that make them change. So look at these images, look at the key that I've told you about up here. Who thinks it's these cells that have been treated with the chemicals that make stem cells change? Rex, was that a hand I saw going up? <laughs> Who thinks it's these cells that have been treated with the chemical? Oh, yes, a few, yes, well done. <laughs> yes, congratulations, you have passed the quiz. It is these cells which have been treated because they're looking a bit flat and unstained. And what we've treated these cells with are chemicals, two different chemicals, um, and I put these in for Steve Ward, who unfortunately is not able to attend, but, but John, you might appreciate this as well. They block an enzyme which we call PI3K for short, or phosphonositide 3 kinase. And what these experiments show is when we block this particular enzyme with these drugs, that these cells change into other cell types. So this is quite useful for making the cells change into other cell types. And we've actually then combined that knowledge with some pretty, pretty complicated um, technology, which allows us to measure the levels of thousands of different genes in the cells. And we get a readout of whether a gene is high or low in a cell after we've treated it in a particular way. And if it's high, it's shown up as a red line. I apologise if anyone's colourblind. I understand that these, these will just look blank. Um, or green if they are actually, if the level is low. And what we find if we inhibit our PI3K enzyme with this drug here, we see a lot of genes being decreased in their level of expression, shown by these green patterns here. They go from red to green. We focused on some of those, and one of our particular favourite genes is called ZSCAN4C. Obviously, we are running out of four-letter acronyms. And what we show here is that if we decrease the levels of this protein, then the cells start to change. They're not staining here, whereas they are staining in the control situation. And when we look at levels of these important transcription factors, OCT4 and NANOG, they've actually also gone down when we decrease the levels of this transcription factor. So we're starting to kind of connect, if you like, some of the um, signaling pathways, we call them, some of the enzymes with the genetics, with regulation of cell behaviour. So we're starting to understand how we can kind of flip that seesaw, if you like, to get them to make more stem cells or to get them to change into other cell types. And actually, it's getting really confusing, and I'm, I only flash this up just to say this is just the tip of the iceberg, really. There's still many things we don't understand. It's going to keep us busy for a very long time. And before you get too alarmed, I will flick on to the next slide to summarise that, that we actually now understand quite a lot about embryonic stem cells, we understand quite a lot about some of these transcription factors that regulate genes, about some of the enzymes that are important in those cells and some of the growth factors. And what we're doing in collaboration with other scientists is to apply this knowledge to kind of more practical um, situations. And through a collaboration with my colleague Julian Chowdhury in the Department of Chemical Engineering here, what we're doing is applying this knowledge we have of how we can control stem cell behaviour to actually try and approach the problem of if you need millions or billions of cells to treat people, to actually develop new screening procedures for new drugs, for drug testing, you're going to need lots and lots of cells. You can imagine if you needed lots and lots of cells, you might be able to grow, say, 10 million cells on one of these, right? But for a patient, you might need a hundred or a thousand times that number of cells. That's a lot of these flasks. That's a lot of manpower. And it's a lot of very bored people doing the same thing all the time. I don't really think that's going to be suitable in the future. So we're trying to kind of move that on and sort of put an engineering spin on it, if you like. So we're using three-dimensional kind of little... Um, microcarriers, we call them. We attach the stem cells to these microcarriers and then put them into this, what we call a bioreactor, which is kind of 
we fill up with media that the cells like and it spins around and the cells are really happy. And this is actually an image of mouse embryonic stem cells growing on one of these microcarriers. Each of the little blue dots here is actually a stem cell attached. They've proliferated on these cells and we're now actually getting fairly good rates of growth in these particular conditions for mouse cells. And we've started to apply that to human cells. I'm afraid this one isn't animated. But these blue dots, again, are actually human embryonic stem cells growing on one of those little spheres and expanding in number. So we're actually starting to address some of those scale-up problems that we're going to need to solve if we're actually going to translate some of our understanding of stem cells into the clinic and into pharmaceutical sciences in the future. Okay, so we, we go back to our video of our stem cells doing what they like to do, renewing themselves, and also changing into other cell types. And I now want to spend a few minutes talking about what we understand about how we can change these cells into other cell types and how that, those properties are being exploited and bringing things closer to the clinic, closer to treatment for patients. Now, I said at the very close to the beginning of this lecture that one of the reasons that people are so interested in stem cells is because they can generate many different cell types. And many diseases, chronic diseases, are caused because cells are lost and the body cannot replace them. This is particularly true in neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, we don't understand exactly why those cells are being lost, but we know that when they are, they lead to the symptoms of the disease, and the body cannot make new cells to repair and replace that loss. But if we could change stem cells into the types of cells that are lost in these types of diseases, we offer potentially curative treatments to patients. So this could have a huge impact. These diseases don't currently have good treatments. This mechanism provides us with the way that you can actually cure patients, a new way of treating people. And this is, could be applied to many different disease settings. So, can we change embryonic stem cells into other cell types? We can. And one straightforward way of doing that is actually just changing how we grow them. So instead of growing them on a flat surface, like we would in one of these dishes, we actually kind of scrape them up a bit break them up into clumps and actually put them either into a jelly-like substance, and it really is a jelly-like substance called methylcellulose. It's quite a mouthful. Um, or you just grow them in a suspension. You just stop them from sticking down. And they form these clumps of cells, which we call embryoid bodies, and they start to spontaneously change into different cell types within those developing structures. And we can even generate embryo bodies that sort of look a bit like rabbits. <laughs> Not all the time, that's kind of a bit of a one-off. Okay, and if we do that, then... Is that starting? Okay, so what we can see here is that if we induce these cells to start to change, to start to differentiate, hopefully you can actually see in, in this panel here that these cells are actually twitching. The reason these are twitching is because these embryonic stem cells have changed into cells of the heart, cardiomyocytes. They're kind of the powerhouse of your heart. They're what causes the contraction all of the time. And when you get those cells in your culture, your culture starts to twitch. And I remember the first time that someone in my lab was doing this, they phoned me up on a Saturday lunchtime going, the cells are twitching, they're twitching. And I'm like, that's good, actually, we want that. But he was very excited at that point. Um, and this is just showing them actually in their embroidered body form. So these have been stained with a green fluorescent protein. And you can see that these embroidered bodies, are was just changing the microscope around there. And these are actually twitching as well because they've got heart cells formed in those embryoid bodies. We can also um, take those embryonic stem cells and turn them into blood cells. So you all know that your red blood cells play a really important role for transporting oxygen. We can actually make red blood cells from embryonic stem cells through a process of quite complicated procedures. 
And the reason that these are actually red is not because we've stained them with anything, but because they're producing hemoglobin as normal red blood cells would. So that's really how we define what those cells are. And scientists around the world are using their favourite kind of approaches to generate their favourite cell types. And what I want to do to finish is to just pull out a couple of examples which I think best illustrate where those studies are going and the ones that are most likely to benefit patients um, earlier than some others. So the first thing I want to talk a little bit about is this London Project to Cure Blindness, which is led by Professor Pete Coffey in London. And this project is um, aimed towards a disease called age-related macular degeneration, which is a disease, a condition which affects people over about the age of 55 or so. And what happens is that you get fatty deposits in the back of your eye. So this is a slice through your eye this way. It's all right, Alice, there isn't any blood. <laughs> and you get these fatty deposits. And what happens is that they destroy cells in this area of the eye called the macula. And this is actually a picture of a, a real eye, which you've got these little fatty deposits here. And what happens is that then the area at the back of your eye, normally responsible for, for, for vision, your central vision in the retina, are destroyed. And so if you have age-related macular degeneration, you kind of have distorted vision. You can't see the centre of images. And so what um, Pete Coffey's team have done is they've taken human embryonic stem cells, changed them into the type of cells which are destroyed in this disease, they're called retinal pigment epithelial cells, really beautiful staining here. And what they hope to do is they hope to take these cells and transplant them back into the eye of affected patients. They already have very good evidence that if you took a little proportion of the retina from somewhere else that wasn't affected and sort of stitch it into this affected area in patients, it has a very good response. It, has, it leads to recovery, but it's quite a complicated operation. So the idea that you could actually take some cells and not necessarily squirt them in, but introduce them in a defined way, probably with some other materials, some scaffolding materials to hold them in place, that you could actually treat a lot of people very effectively. Um, the exciting thing for them is they've just received um, some co-funding from Pfizer to take this forward, and I think they hope to have the first trials in patients in the next 12 to 18 months. I think that's a very exciting prospect um, and something which I think, because it's very focused and very localised, could actually really have great benefit. The other exciting development, um, and this is really going, this is going to be the first in man cells derived from human embryonic stem cells, is a phase one safety clinical trial which is being run by the Californian company Geron. And what they're doing is taking embryonic stem cells and making what we call oligodendrocyte precursors. Now, what these are going to be used for is for treating patients who've had a severe traumatic spinal cord injury. And what happens in those patients is that often the spinal cord, this region here, is actually damaged. But it's not the nerves that are damaged or severed, but the insulating cells which are severed. And if those insulating cells are severed, then those nerves can no longer conduct electrical signals to make your limbs move. So that's why spinal cord injury leads to sometimes permanent paralysis. What Geron believe they can do is if they can repair that sort of insulating layer with these cells that they've made from human embryonic stem cells, they may be able to um, repair that spinal cord injury such that patients don't suffer from the continued paralysis that they would um, normally anticipate after a spinal cord injury. And so this was just announced um, in um, January, shortly after President Obama took office, and there was uh, much debate about the timing of this approval but it's, very, it's, very, um, it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be limited to 12 patients initially, and I think everybody's very interested, got their fingers crossed that this is all going to go well. And I think that Christopher Reeve, who campaigned very hard in the United States for this type of research to go forward, would be very happy to know that actually his campaigning has 
led to um, the first in man of this particular type of treatment. Not only can stem cells be used for treating people, but I've mentioned also that they may be very useful for testing drug safety. And I'm involved with a project with my colleague David Tosh, and Heather Bowden is the postdoc on that project, where we're very interested in generating liver cells from embryonic stem cells for use in drug safety testing. Work in David's lab has shown that you can take pancreatic cells and change them into liver cells, and we're applying some of that know-how to our stem cell population, to our stem cell project, and so far we've got some very encouraging results. So we're very excited about that, and this is a, a public-private partnership which involves pharmaceutical industry and government funding, and we're very pleased to be involved in that pilot phase, and we look forward to that continuing in the future. Because I think if we can supply liver cells to make drugs safer, then we're really all going to benefit from that, probably in the fairly short term. So I said that I hoped to answer this question that I posed as the title of my lecture, and I hope that I have convinced you that if we can understand stem cells, or that our understanding of stem cells is already leading to new things in the field that are going to be really, that are really important for the field, that are bringing the potential of stem cells closer, not only to treatments, but also to improving drug discovery and safety, and also, although I haven't really had time to talk about it today, improving how we understand normal disease and normal development. So I just sort of want to finish my lecture, really, by sort of acknowledging some... Um, <laughs> some key figures who have mentored me throughout my career. Um, the first was um, Peter Rigby when I was an undergraduate student at Imperial College. <laughs> um, and a friend of mine actually sent me our, our admissions photographs. Um, and, and this, I've hardly changed a bit, I don't think, from, from that time. A fresh-faced undergraduate. Um, where I first became, had my first exposure to, uh, to embryonal carcinoma cells, which are not quite embryonic stem cells, but were kind of the forerunner for that. Little did I know that some 20-odd years later, I would be really working in that area. Um, then it comes to uh, my, my PhD supervisor, Professor John Wyke, who would have liked to have been here this evening, but was unfortunately unable to. Um, a mad Australian who I had uh, the pleasure to work with in Vancouver, John Schrader, um, who is a great inspiration and, and quite a fun guy. And then to John Westwick, who is here today, um, who actually recruited me here to Bath and has been a great supporter um, ever since. And I'm going to miss out the intervening years because I had some bad hair days, let's say, and, uh, and sort of fast forward to, to sort of almost the present day. Um, I'd also, obviously, I couldn't have done, I couldn't have achieved what I have achieved and done the work without all those people in the lab. And this is actually a slightly old, out-of-date photograph, and I don't have photographs of everybody. But obviously, I'm immensely grateful um, to all of the lab members, past and present, because it's not me who's in the lab every day. It's them who are in the lab every day, counting those assays, and they really love counting those assays. Obviously, we're also grateful to the funders of our research because we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't get support from the various agencies. And I'm also very grateful to uh, collaborators in Europe, um, at the University of Leeds, and my colleagues here in the Centre for Regenerative Medicine. And finally, my scientific colleagues will hopefully think of me like this. But my friends and family, who I'm also very grateful to for their support, and there are several of them here, might recognise me more like this. And, and thank you, Kate, for providing uh, this card. And thank you all for listening. Thank you, Melanie. And I'd like to now call on Professor Rex Tyrrell, Head of the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology, to propose the vote of thanks. Rex. Professor Jennison, Dean of the Faculty of Science, Professor Melanie Wellham, distinguished inaugural lecturer. Um, it's my great pleasure to uh, be asked to give this uh, vote of thanks on behalf of the university, the faculty, 
the department and, and of course, the audience. Mellon has been a, a lecturer for some time in the department and for quite some time a professor in the department. But I, I should say that it's traditional for uh, people to give their inaugural lectures some time after they have actually become a professor. This isn't just because she's been trying to get enough data to give a lecture. This is certainly not the case she had much before. And uh, it, was a, it was great to, to listen to this. Um, I should also say that during this time, the, the department has grown in stature and continues to grow in stature, has achieved quite interesting uh, national acclaim uh, recently, and I should say that Melanie has been one of the cornerstones that has led to this acclaim, so it's particularly a pleasure to listen to her give this public address today, so this is all part of uh, what has led to our success. Um, I think a lot of us think right from an early age, bio, people who do biology at least, and maybe people who don't, as soon as they know about cells and that these are the basis, basic building blocks of life, actually begin to wonder how it is that one little cell or two cells fusing together turn into a sea urchin that Melanie showed or a snake or a slug or a, a frog or a princesses or whatever. You know, how, does, how does that happen? And I think that uh, Melanie has done a great job today of explaining how this complex process is beginning to be understood and the processes that have gone forward to do that. And, uh, um, and I think that was a really... Um, an illuminating lecture, I think, for all of us and uh, showing sort of the, ba the basis of it, of it all. Some of us, of course, it might have been all very obvious, but there were some quite new interesting bits in there, especially the photos. I enjoyed the early photos. <laughs> um, I think that this whole area has a big impact. And when Melanie, well, well sorry, when, when Professor Jennison first introduced, he read the title... Uh, are the benefits to all. So the question for you all was to carefully follow the lecture and see, are the benefits to all? Did Melanie answer the question? But like a really good professor, you would have noticed that one minute later, as Melanie started her speech, she said, yes, there are benefits for all, and I'm going to tell you how. So you knew the answer right at the very beginning. But of course, Melanie did come back to the point. She did some very clear illustrations of how this can benefit us all, and I think we can be fairly convinced that this really is the case, and we, we thank you for that. Too late for Superman, but as Melanie said, he played a very important role in all this, in, in pushing this forward. So on behalf of the university, the faculty, the department, and the audience here, your delightful daughters who have attended all this, and I'm sure know far more about what you really do than any of us ever will, Thank you again for the lecture, and I'd like you all to join again in thanking Melanie for this. <laughs>